Good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Go ahead and uh, find your way to Matthew 14. The end of that chapter, verses 34 to 36, very last three verses. As you're finding your place there, you can stick your thumb in it. <clears throat> when I looked at Matthew 14 and those three verses this, for the first time this week, I thought to myself, um, how am I going to preach more than five or ten minutes on this? <laughs> it's three verses, right? It couldn't be, a, you know, it's, there's not a ton there. Um, and then the more I, I spent time in it, the more I realized, oh, there's a lot here. It was a good reminder for me of something I've learned over the years that um, every word of God is purposeful. Um, I, you know, I don't know how new you are to this journey of exploring Christianity or following Jesus, but one of the things that we believe is that all Scripture is God-breathed, every word of it. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. And so when we take that seriously, we realize God has a lot to say to us, even in just three verses. It isn't superfluous. Um, years ago, I think, I looked at the Bible a little bit differently than I do today. I used to look at it as, in mine, I have 1,200 pages you know, 1,000 pages plus, and then tens of thousands of verses, and I thought to myself, so there's tens of thousands of truths that I have to master to understand who this God is. And I think where I've come to understand how to approach God's word is that really there are very few key profound truths that have to do with who God is, who we are, what it means to follow after him, what holiness looks like, what the gospel is. There really aren't a ton of new truths there are just thousands and tens of thousands of different angles and facets that God sheds on the same truths. That's what good teachers do. They actually say the same most important things over and over again. And that's what I've come to understand about our Bible. So when we look at these three verses, just a few verses, and when we look at the theme in a moment, it's a pretty simple fundamental theme, pretty basic for some of you, probably, upon hearing. But the hope and the prayer is, it's a fresh angle, it's a new facet, on the same old truths that are going to help us to grow deeper in our walk with Jesus today. So Matthew 14, verses 34 to 36. And when they crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, were made well. So simply, the big idea from today is how we are healed. How it is that we are healed. Or how as broken people living in a broken world, true healing comes about in our lives, body, soul, and spirit. Now, the immediate context is physical healing, right? Jesus is physically healing people, but we know from having journeyed with him through the Gospel of Matthew for this long, that there's always a double purpose. At the very least, Jesus is trying to demonstrate that he does sincerely care about our temporal needs. But beyond that, he's also revealing to us, through his physical healing, a pointer to our eternal need, the need that our souls have for eternity, that he has also come to make provision for. And we see that encapsulated, symbolized almost even, through the physical healing that he does. So here's the thing. Not all the people who were 
beneficiaries of Jesus' healing here necessarily realized that or embraced that double purpose about Jesus, a lot of them probably didn't see him as anything more than a miracle worker who could bring healing into their lives. But that doesn't diminish from the fact that it's true. We, we know that it's true. So one of the things that I want us to see here this morning, I think God wants us for, for us to see this morning, is that the journey to physical healing that was experienced by those in view in our passage is really the same principle and the same process as the journey to spiritual healing that he wants to provide in your and my life. So as we answer that question, how is it that we are healed this morning from these three brief verses, my focus is primarily going to be on the spiritual, not because the physical isn't important, not because God doesn't still bring supernatural physical healing in this temporary, temporal context, but because that's what's plain and simple from this passage. And I think God is also trying to share with us something more about what we need and what Jesus has come to do. The other thing I want to say up front here is that all these principles apply as we talk about them, not just to salvation. If you're here today and you're not yet at that place in your journey where you have crossed that threshold to fully surrendering your life to Jesus and trusting him, then certainly there is a roadmap here today as to how to get there to a place where you are following after Jesus and he has secured your soul for eternity. But these same principles and the same process also applies to the journey of sanctification, what we would call sanctification, or growing and becoming more like Christ. So here are those five principles. Number one, we recognize Jesus for who he is. All these come right from this passage, okay? Number two, we recognize our own neediness. Number three, we earnestly desire to be changed. Number four, we respond in faith to that which Jesus has revealed. And number five, we bring others to Jesus, okay? We see all of these principles in play, and I don't think it's any coincidence I think it's a concise roadmap to how we experience real healing and change, whether you're not yet a follower of Jesus or a longtime follower, okay? So that first principle, we recognize Jesus for who he is in verse 35. What we see here is Jesus shows up on the shore of Gennesaret. He's now going back over to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. These people see him. They recognize him as the guy who's been doing all this miraculous healing, and they go and spread the word. They're excited that Jesus has grace them with his presence um, because now is their opportunity to experience his work of healing in their life. And so they spread the word and they are ecstatic and they go and get other people and bring them to him who need healing. See, both salvation and sanctification, both of those things start with recognizing Jesus for who he is. So either recognizing who he is for the first time, leading to that first step of faith of trusting Jesus or recognizing him on a deeper level over the course of a lifetime of getting to know Jesus more deeply. The Apostle Paul conveys this concept in 1 Corinthians 13, how uh, the process of becoming more like Christ is a lifetime journey that comes as a result of seeing him more clearly. When he talks about how now we see as in a mirror dimly, then we shall see face to face. The, the mere dimly uh, analogy or illustration is that of like a, a, I think they used brass for their mirrors, so it was kind of a dim reflection you would get back of yourself. You couldn't see yourself super clearly. And so he's contrasting that to eternity, that when we'll see clearly, because we'll see Jesus face to face, the apostle John continues on this idea in 1 John 3, 2, when he says, when Jesus appears at his return, right, the inauguration of the eternal kingdom, when Jesus returns, when he appears, we will be like him because we will what? See him as he is. 
Okay, so that's how integral seeing Jesus, recognizing him for who he is, is to both the journey of salvation and then also growth in Christ. And so who do we see him as in this passage? We see him as a healer, at the very least. Now for some who saw Jesus as a healer, it stopped at the what? What could Jesus do for me? But I want to get beyond the what, because I think that in the what, in what Jesus did for those people and does for people today is the who, right? What really helps us to see his character on display is the context in which he did the what, did the healing. Um, You know, when you fall in love with a person, hopefully you're not just falling in love with them for what they can do for you, right? When you fall in love with a person, you're falling in love with them because of who you know them to be, who they are at the depth of their identity, their, their, their core character. I think that's the next level we want to get to in seeing who Jesus is as a result of being a healer here. So we see a couple things. We see, number one, he's compassionate. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, his compassion when he was trying to retreat to get some silence and solitude to grieve the loss of his cousin, John. Um, and yet, when he gets to the other side, where he was trying to get to a desolate place, there are crowds of maybe tens of thousands who show up to receive healing from him, and he heals them. And we talked about how compassionate a response that was under the circumstances. Um, and, and so here, it's all the more a compassionate response because that event had just happened, right? The loss of his cousin uh, showing up on the other shore to a crowd of 10,000 who not only did he heal and teach to, but he miraculously fed them. He goes back out onto the lake last week. He teaches the disciples a lesson about who he is, the son of God, by enduring the storm and walking on the water, gets back in the boat, heads to the other side, the western edge of the Sea of Galilee, and here's another town that immediately recognizes him for who he is and what he can do, and he's healing again. It's incredibly compassionate because of all that Jesus had going on and how exhausting it must have been to him. But Jesus is never seen as self-centered in the scriptures. He's never seen as aloof. He's always compelled by the brokenness that he sees around him to do something about it. That's amazing. Pause, stop, soak that in. What I'm not trying to do here is give you a guilt trip. If you immediately took that as, Jesus is like this, so I need to be too. Gosh, I fall so far short. Maybe on some level, but that's down the road. That isn't the point of what I'm trying to make or this passage right here. See, you'll never be like that if you don't stop to soak in who he is first. A a God who never ceases to have compassion or mercy on those who come to him. Even when you think he probably should cease to, because that's where your line would be. Not for Jesus. Enjoy that. Embrace that. Let that truth wash over you about how he responds to you when you approach him. Unworthy as you may feel. All right, but... Here's what we also see. Not only that he's compassionate, kind of the other side of that coin in this passage when it comes to Jesus as healer, he's incredibly gracious. All right, if we, if we try to put ourselves in these circumstances and in the shoes of those people, Jesus knows the hearts of men. We learn that elsewhere in, I think, John chapter 2, right? He knows the hearts of men. There's a good chance that a lot of those people were there just for what Jesus could do for them. They just wanted the healing. They didn't necessarily want the man behind the healing. But we're told, regardless, that as many as touched his garment were made well, despite the fact that Jesus knew some were coming to him with mixed motives. He doesn't turn them away or confront these mixed motives. He gives them what they don't deserve. This we call grace, right? 
when God gives you something, when anyone gives you something you don't deserve, when God gives you something you don't deserve, it's called grace. It's one of the great paradoxical themes that we encounter in the scripture. In that this, in the economy of how change happens, in the economy of how healing happens, growth in Christ happens in your life, it begins with receiving something from God that you know is completely undeserved. Paul conveys this idea in Romans chapter 2 when he says it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. God doesn't wait until we have our act together. He doesn't wait until our motives are pure. He actually is banking on, he is risking so much, sending his son into the world by preemptively extending kindness to those who come to him in meager faith, even with mixed motives. And he gives them what they don't deserve. In this case, he heals these people who are coming to him for all sorts of different reasons. This is really good news, by the way, for those who are here today, whether you would have considered yourself such or not, who have more of like a fragile soul or an an insecure soul. Because there are some that are here in this room today who probably believe this is, I believe this is who Jesus is. And I believe that he can do these things, but just not, not for me. For other people, yes. But, but I'm the exception. That's one of the lies that I think we are prone to tell ourselves. We are the exception to the rule. And so we fill in the blank of verse 35. We say instead, as many as had gotten their lives figured out were made well. Or as many as had not committed this particular sin were made well. But I'm the exception. Couldn't be for me. That's not what we're told. No, it says whoever touched him, even those who were just wanting the healing, Jesus healed because he's gracious. Also still under uh, that heading of graciousness, Jesus' graciousness that we see on display here, notice the way in which they expect healing to come. They believe that the key is to touch the garment of his robe. It's incredibly superstitious. Don't gloss too quickly over that detail. It probably came as a result of them hearing the story of the woman who had had the unceasing bleeding for 12 years who touched the fringe of Jesus' garment and was instantly healed. So then everybody was like, oh, that's all you need to do. So they believed that the power to be healed was in a garment rather than the man, which was incredibly superstitious. But what I want you to see here is Jesus condescended to their imperfect understanding of who he was. Compare this, by the way, with the centurion in Matthew chapter 8. You may remember the story we covered earlier in our Matthew series where um, he came to Jesus. He had a servant who was sick, seriously sick. And he came to Jesus and he shared with him what was going on. And uh, Jesus says that he'll come to him. The centurion replies this way. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. See, he reflected the fact he understood something more deeply about the nature and character of who this man and was in front of him, that all he needed to do is say the word. Take it to the next level, all he would have needed to have done is be aware and think the thought, right? My point in bringing up that story is just to say this, that that's a mature expression of faith, but Jesus works with people where they're at, as he does in this passage. Um, There's a friend I had uh, who told me the story of his own testimony, how he came to Christ, and he grew up Catholic. He was not a believer for much of his life. He was given at one point this kind of like a relic uh, or a statue of a crucifix, um, which is Jesus on a cross, and it was on a hill. It was kind of Golgotha, where, where the, the crucifixion took place. And one day it fell off a shelf and broke on the floor, and it shattered everything but the cross and Jesus on it. 
And for him, it was like, oh my gosh, God is trying to speak to me. I need to give my life to Christ. And it was instrumental in him surrendering his life to Jesus. Now, in the past, I might have been quick to be like, well, I don't know, it was probably just coincidence, you know, and, or that's a little superstitious. What I've come to realize is that we should be slow to count the unconventional ways God may graciously condescend to someone's journey of faith to bring them closer to Jesus, okay? I think we see him doing that here with all these people who are just thinking, okay, I just need to grab a little bit of his robe here and then I'll be healed. So, Jesus is gracious here. He's compassionate. We see that through the way in which he heals these people, understanding where they're coming from, their imperfect motives and theology when it comes to who Jesus is. I want to just spend a couple minutes talking about um, thoughts, uh, sharing a couple of thoughts on what may keep people from recognizing Jesus. Some cultural veils that are common within our culture. We know that Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about how um, the natural man does not discern the spiritual things because they're of the spirit. So clearly there's a spiritual component to blindness, but there is also a very natural component in the sense that there are worldviews that can influence people to believe differently or, or to dismiss Jesus altogether. I just want to mention them briefly. Number one, people can look at Jesus as merely a crutch. This is the idea that mankind has everything they need, all the resources at their disposal within themselves innately to be able to overcome our biggest problems, including our sin and the brokenness in this world. That's the veil of humanism or secular humanism. Okay, I'm going through these real quick just for time's sake. Secondly, Jesus, uh, there's the view that Jesus is just merely a man. This is the veil of um, uh, uh, historical ignorance. And I don't mean that in a patronizing or negative way, just ignorance is in not knowing any better, right? If you dig into history and you explore the resurrection of Jesus Christ historically, there is incredibly compelling evidence that the resurrection actually took place. Um, a couple, just a couple examples of that. Early on, like within years of Jesus' death and resurrection, there was, there, we have writings outside the Bible of these early Jewish polemics, apologists, um, Jewish theologians who were arguing against the early church, saying, uh, giving all sorts of implausible explanations for why the tomb was empty. In so doing, they're conceding several things. Jesus existed, he died, he was buried, there's an empty tomb, and no one has found the body. And that's coming out of the mouths of those who are trying to find a way to say that Jesus isn't the Messiah. When you add to that the evidence that we have, biblically and extra-biblically, of the disciples, 11 of the 12 who died for their belief that Jesus rose from the dead, it's incredibly compelling. Because here you have fearful disciples who are fleeing when Jesus dies, who all of a sudden are willing to die for their faith. The thing is, a lot of people have been willing to die for their faith, even outside of Christianity throughout history. Right? There have been a lot of martyrs. People are willing to die for what they believe to be true. But who is willing to die for what they know is a lie? And the disciples would have known that, right? And that's just a couple of different evidences we have historically that make the resurrection incredibly compelling. And if you can believe in the resurrection, everything else comes into focus pretty quickly about who this Jesus is. And then there's finally the, and these are just three, there's more, but the, the belief that Jesus is just a prude. Jesus is just a killjoy, right? This is the veil of hedonism. The belief that whatever feels good, whatever brings pleasure instantly, it must be good, it must be true. This is kind of the postmodern mindset that we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Herod um, and him constantly taking the path of least resistance early on in uh, chapter 14. 
Now, here's the thing I, I want you to see. In God's economy of pleasure, because he's not against pleasure, the principle is often this, delayed gratification. Oftentimes, the thing that will bring truest pleasure and joy is not the thing that immediately will gratify your desires, but that there's a delayed gratification. But we know that God is not against pleasure. The psalmist says in Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Implied in there is both temporal joy and eternal pleasure. God is not against pleasure. But he is against pleasure that's sought outside of the boundaries that he has set up for us because he knows that those things will ultimately lead to destruction. So there's the veil of Christian hedonism. These these are different veils that are over the eyes of many in our culture and to some degree probably ourselves at times that can keep us from recognizing Jesus for who he is. So that's number one. If we're going to cross the threshold of salvation or grow in relationship with Jesus, we, number one, must recognize Jesus for who he is. Number two, we must recognize our own neediness. In verse 35, we see that those who recognize Jesus now sent around to the whole area um, to tell them all about uh, Jesus being there, and they brought to Jesus those who were sick. Now, it's one thing to recognize Jesus as a healer, and physically, and to recognize those who are physically sick, and to, to bring those people to him. It's a whole other thing to recognize that we're sick in our soul. Because um, that strikes a lot closer to the core of our identity when we have to consider, consider and confess and own the fact that we have um, a deficit in our own character, a brokenness at our core that isn't just physical. But we know that this is true from Scripture. We know this is needed for us from places like Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages, what we earn as a result of that is death, physical and spiritual, right? So, in order for us to cross that threshold or continue growing with Jesus, we have to remain acutely aware of, of the deficit that exists in our own soul, the need that we have for Jesus to redeem us. The only other thing I want to say here is it's probably no coincidence that these verses sit in stark contrast to the Pharisees we'll encounter next week in chapter 15, who are so convinced of their righteousness that they're blind of how the traditions they have set up are actually hurtful to others around them, and not just others themselves, because they were so self-righteous, they didn't see a need for a savior. So that's the second one. We need to recognize our own neediness. Recognize who Jesus is. Recognize our own neediness. Thirdly, we must eagerly or earnestly desire to be changed. So I love this word implored that we see in verse 36. When the sick were brought to Jesus, they implored that they could only touch his garment. That word implored, when you define it, it's to beg someone earnestly or desperately to do something. And to me, I really feel like this is kind of the linchpin or the hinge for all of these principles of how we are changed, how we are healed, is the earnestness and eagerness with which we come to Jesus for healing. So be honest. Is there an earnestness and a desperation in you to be made well by Jesus? Sometimes we can grow so familiar with our sin and a the destructive patterns in our life that we're no longer really earnest for change. <clears throat> There's a scene in John chapter five. <clears throat> Jesus is approaching a pool that's outside of the gate of Jerusalem and there are a bunch of people there who are, are, are sick or lame or invalids who are there who it's 
kind of weird. We don't know if it was just superstition or <clears throat> real, but there was a pool there that um, every once in a while would have ripples in it. And the people thought that when that happened, an angel must have stirred the waters and um, the first one to be able to jump in would be healed. But there was this one man that Jesus approached who had been there for 38 years. And Jesus approaches him and he asks him this question. He said, do you want to be well? And it's a strange question for a guy who's been there for 38 years, purportedly because he wants to get into the pool to be healed. Some commentators will just suggest Jesus is doing nothing more here than heightening an expectation that he's about to perform a healing. But I think it's noteworthy that after Jesus does heal him, he asks the question, then he heals him. Jesus circles back to him later on that day, and he, he, asks, he says this to him. He says, now sin no more so that nothing worse may happen to you. See, sometimes we love our sin more than we hate its consequences. For this guy, life was certainly horrible and hard in one regard. Please hear that. And he would have felt that. And there would have been a part of him that would have been desired to be released from that, I am sure. But he'd found a way to survive in that condition for 38 years, in part probably off the generosity of others. What would happen if he was healed? Well, he, he would lose that generosity if he was able to regain his ability to walk. He would lose that familiarity and comfort of being able to rely on others for all of his life. I think there was a reason why Jesus asked him that question and why he was there for 38 years. In, um, in Redemption Groups, which is a counseling ministry that we have at Terra Nova, there's a series of questions that we share with the participants over the course of the time. The one that I've always found to be most deeply penetrating is this. In the sin that we claim to hate, what's the payoff that we actually love? In the sin that we claim to hate, what is the payoff that we actually love? You see, oftentimes a lack of earnestness for change in our lives is due to a reluctance to give up that which needs to be changed because it's going to cost us something. But for real spiritual change to take place, whether salvation or sanctification, it doesn't come apart from earnestly seeking the healer's healing. Now, I feel like I need to take an aside here just to address perhaps one reaction that might be possible for some people in this room. There are those in this room, I am sure, who have acute suffering of various kinds, emotionally or physically, who have sought Jesus earnestly with the pure motives, with the right motives, and have not experienced healing. And you can read a passage like this where everybody indiscriminately who came to Jesus in that instance was healed, and it can be incredibly disillusioning for you. So I just want to say a couple things because that is a hard place to be in. Firstly, I just want you to, to know there are other passages in which it's implied or even explicit that Jesus doesn't heal everybody who he's in the presence of and could have healed. And it isn't because he doesn't love them or because they didn't have enough faith, but it's because in a mysterious way in his sovereign wisdom, he chose not to. But I also want you to hear that there is hope for you if you find yourself in this position that you can count on Jesus' healing because it's not a matter of if Jesus is going to heal. It's just a matter of when. And I also want you to hear this too, that spiritual healing that Jesus offers for your soul is instant. There is no question as to whether God 
is willing or thinks it's best that your soul be healed when you come before him and surrender your life to him. That's instant. We're told for as many as touched it were made well here. Yes, that was physical healing, but that is what's true all the time for those who come humbly to Jesus for spiritual healing. And then hear this too, that physical and emotional healing may, not, may or may not come in this lifetime for you for reasons that God only knows, but it's a part of the promise that's baked into spiritual healing. That whatever doesn't happen in this life will happen in the next as a result of Jesus having secured your soul by his grace so that you can be with him and made new in the new heavens and the new earth. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I know that's hard, but I want to share with you briefly just a promise here that you're going to need to continue to lean into if you find yourself in that situation. Because the Apostle Paul did, and one of the things he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is this. He says, For this light momentary affliction, speaking of his own physical sufferings and persecution, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Just three brief things I want to share with you there. Number one, he calls it light and momentary affliction. It doesn't feel like it right now, but this is God's word. This is true. He's saying from an eternal perspective, that's what it's going to seem like. Number two, he says it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So when I said before that sometimes Jesus doesn't heal those who are immediately in front of him because of his mysterious sovereign wisdom, we're actually given an explanation as to why. There's something about God allowing suffering to remain in our lives sometimes that actually prepares you differently for eternity, that your eternal experience with him will be different, full of greater glory, because you endured suffering with Christ now here on earth, a place where it's light and momentary. And then thirdly, I want you to hear that he gives you the, the key as to how you can endure suffering that remains. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Keep that eternal perspective, guys. And know that you are secure in Christ's hand spiritually. That is a guarantee. You do not have to question that. You may question if and when physical healing, emotional healing are gonna come on this side of eternity. You do not have to question if you are following Jesus, if he has you securely in his hand for all of eternity with him. So the principles so far are we recognize Jesus for who he is. We recognize our own neediness. We come to him in earnestness, seeking healing. Fourthly, we respond in faith to that which he has revealed. Okay, in verse 36, again, we see that these people merely touch the fringe of his garment and they are healed. See, we don't do much of anything in our salvation. Even that's an overstatement. We don't do anything in our salvation. It's all Jesus and it's pictured here, touching the fringe of his garment. That isn't contributing much to the equation of your spiritual journey. In fact, that act was superstitious. They didn't even have their theology right. But it was enough so that Jesus and his compassion and grace brought healing to them. It just goes to show you how little we bring to the table when it comes to experiencing healing in our lives, spiritual healing. Jesus says elsewhere, with the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. See, Jesus is calling us to trust him with whatever resources and knowledge we have currently at our disposal, however little that may be. Now, the temptation may be to wait until you feel like you are a spiritual giant to take the next step, step of faith of following Jesus. 
I know that it is for me oftentimes. But the whole point of faith is in recognizing Jesus invites you to receive healing from him and to follow him just as you are from the very place that you are currently sitting in. Now, I'm not saying that's not going to cost you something. Faith can be incredibly sacrificial. But faith isn't a labor. It's not a work in the sense that it's something that you do before God will accept you. Instead, faith are the choices that you make to trust God to provide and the places you can't provide for yourself in the steps of obedience he's called you to. And then once you're on that path, taking that step of obedience, he provides the power to change, to be healed, to grow. He does that, not us. So the fourth principle for how healing and change take place is through responding to him in faith with the resources you have at your disposal to that which he's revealed to you which may not be everything, but you have everything you need right now to take that next step of faith. All right, finally, last point here, uh, last principle, we bring others to Jesus. See, when they recognized Jesus, they sent around and they brought uh, to Jesus all who were sick. So here's what we see in this principle, that when we bring others to Jesus, it's both a mark of faith and a maker of faith. Here's what I mean by that. It's a mark of faith in that if we truly believe Jesus to be a game changer for us, then it's gonna be our impulse, our natural reflex of rebirth to want to bring other people to him. If we're not eager to bring other people to Jesus, it's either because we haven't really met him or we desperately need to become reacquainted with him. Which kind of leads to the next point, that bringing others to Jesus is also a maker of faith. Here's what I mean by that. Think about it. In those who were bringing others to Jesus here, I love the distinction. Many of the ones who brought the sick to Jesus weren't the ones receiving healing for themselves, but they witnessed Jesus' healing power in the lives of those they brought to him. You see, faith grows and worship happens through witnessing God's work in the lives of those that you introduce to him. And then you get to be privy to that. So if we're not leading others to Jesus, then we're actually cutting off one of the primary channels of fuel that God has provided for your faith. So that may actually be the antidote to an apathy towards others' needs for Jesus is to step out in faith and lead somebody to him and watch him work in their life. All right, bringing it to a close here. My guess is that you've Considered these five different principles and probably one of them has stood out to you more than the others. Maybe all of them do, but probably one more than the others. Maybe to this point, you've denied Jesus for who he's revealed himself to be. You haven't crossed the threshold yet of trusting in him. And you need to risk trusting that perhaps he truly is the son of God who can bring healing to your soul and ultimately healing to your body, soul, and spirit. Let today be the day if that's true for you. Don't leave here without having a conversation with one of the pastors um, or somebody who brought you, perhaps. We would love to help you figure out what it looks like to take that next step. Maybe you actually have no problem with Jesus being God and Savior, but you aren't well acquainted enough with your own brokenness to turn to him in need. Maybe you believe Jesus to be Savior and you believe yourself to be a sinner in need, but you've grown so comfortable or even protective of a certain area of sin in your life that you aren't earnest for healing in the place that you really need it. 
Maybe you're reluctant to take that next step of faith because of what it may cost you. Maybe your heart for others and your eagerness to introduce others to Jesus has grown cold. One of these things probably has stood out to you. And any one of these things being absent in your life may be enough to short-circuit the process of you receiving healing and growth in your walk with Jesus. So this week, I encourage you to identify the one that stood out to you the most, pray into that and ask God for wisdom, determine what obedience looks like from God's word, the Bible, and from the counselors around you, those who are Christians who can speak into your journey, and then walk in that. See, Jesus' eagerness to heal never diminishes. His capacity for compassion never wanes. He is ready to heal whoever comes to him, however meager our faith, but we have to come to him. And we have to do so in earnestness. And we have to take that next step of faith. Let's ask his help to do that. Father, we ask that you would help us where our faith is weak, where maybe we lack faith altogether. We ask you to open our eyes to see that Jesus is more than just someone who can do something for us, but to see his beauty, to see his compassion, to see his grace, and to fall in love with him and lay aside all of those things which so easily entangle us in this world and in its life. Father, you know what it is that each of us need here today. Open our eyes to see that with great clarity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We will take the next song to celebrate.